Gospel of John, please, and chapter number 10. I'm probably not the uh, oldest person here, close to it, but uh, I can't remember a conference where there has been ministry virtually exclusively with maybe one or two exceptions from the Gospels. And I think it teaches us a tremendous lesson, and that is that devotional ministry is the most practical ministry we can listen to. It is searching, it is humbling. And it is readjusting to us as far as our own lives are concerned. So I am going to read again from the Gospels. This time from John chapter 10. Just a very few verses. I ask you to turn to the end of the chapter. And verse number 37. John chapter 10 and verse number 37. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe, may not believe the works that ye may know and believe the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him. But he escaped out of their hand and went again, went away again beyond Jordan into a place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. Many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle. But all things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there. Now I trust God will add his blessing to the public reading of his precious word. I would like to try at the very close of the conference, the ministry section of the conference, to do nothing to take away from what has been said. The practical, devotional, uplifting ministry we have heard. But reality is that tomorrow morning, everything changes. You leave the comfortable surroundings of a conference, the encouraging fellowship of other believers, and you're going to be alone, the majority of us. You'll be alone at school. You'll be alone in the dormitory again. You're going to be alone in the office, alone in the hospital, alone in the workplace, alone in the factory. And suddenly all the enthusiasm and all of the encouragement you've heard from the Word of God is going to be so so difficult to grasp when you're suddenly faced with the reality of day-to-day living. Because as we will see, we are not going out to spectacular, exciting lives out there. Most of us live lives that are marked by the routine. Get up the same time, go to the same office, go to the same school, go to the same place, eat the same lunch, come home at the same time. Routine. That's why I have turned to John. That's why I want to read you, why I have read you something about this man, John the Baptist, and what is said about him. Because I want you to notice, first of all, What I learn about John is this. I want you to think of an unspectacular ministry. An unspectacular ministry. John did no miracle. Now that uh, that takes some explaining, doesn't it? Here was a man of whom it is said, first of all, 
that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And yet, yet a man filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, here is the divine commentary upon his life. John did no miracle. But more than that, here is a man whom the Lord Jesus Christ said, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. Yet, John did no miracle. But more than that, more than just being filled with the Spirit of God from his mother's womb, more than just being a man of whom the Lord Jesus Christ said, among those born of women, there hasn't arisen a greater than John. Here was a man who, if they had received it, had come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, Elijah was the man that called down fire from heaven, that raised the widow's son, a man that was marked by tremendous evident power for God in terms of miracles, and yet, John did no miracle. If you had been a reporter following John's life back then, yes, the crowds came and there was a lot of excitement around him, but his life was very routine, nothing spectacular. Nothing that attracted the attention of men because of the the wonderful signs and the tremendous miracles and the power. No. It was a man that had one thing at his disposal, if I can use that expression. He came preaching the word of God, pointing men to Christ. A very unspectacular type of ministry. There is nothing very spectacular, is there? about teaching a Sunday school class of small children. That's what you're going to be doing next week. Nothing very spectacular about supporting the Sunday night gospel meeting, but that's what you're going to be doing next week. Nothing very spectacular about visiting door to door and trying to interest someone in coming out to the gospel meeting or at least in having a conversation about the gospel and doors are slammed in your face and... People say, okay, and Frank Pierce used to say, that really means only kidding, you know. Uh, you know, Nice, thank you very much, okay, only kidding, goodbye. Just anything to get rid of you. Not really very spectacular, is it? That's what John's ministry was like. Nothing very spectacular is there about raising a few small children for God. Doesn't get headlines. Doesn't get notices in the magazine doesn't even get sometimes tragically a thank you from your husband but that's what life is made up of isn't it that's what life is really made up of is the routine now you may think uh, these missionaries they live romantic exciting lives you know everything exciting is happening just ask them sometime about the, uh, the routine of life that they are enmeshed in in their mission fields If you're going to a mission field for romance, forget it. You know what I mean by romance? Excitement and uh, everything just happening. No. It's day in and day out, the routine. That's what life is made up of. That's what John, that's what was missing in John's life was the spectacular. Just, Just serving God in the routine of life. Something that was missing. Something that marked him. What marked this man, John? John did no miracle. He wasn't marked by the spectacular. He was marked by the consistent. The consistent. Now, I am open to your suggestion. 
I'm not exactly sure of uh, time frames, but I would gather that John probably began his ministry prior, well he did begin his ministry prior to the Lord Jesus, so he may have been somewhere around 29 years of age, maybe 28, 29. And again, I'm not exactly sure his ministry could have been as brief as six months. Could have been as long as a year, maybe just a tad longer. Do you ever think of the proportions? 29 years in private for one year in public. Now, I'm I'm almost afraid to say this because the arrow points at me. For 30 minutes in public, how many hours have been in private? God prepares His men in the consistency of private life. This man's character was molded in private. Isn't it interesting when the Lord Jesus pointed to this man? He didn't point to his gift. He didn't point to his his preaching or his success. What he pointed to was John's consistency and faithfulness. He was a burning and a shining light. What would he out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Men like that are living in king's palaces and so on. What would she out for to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No. He spoke of his consistency and of his fidelity. He was a burning and he was a shining light. Now there is something very, very searching about being a shining light. The Lord Jesus gives us the insight in John 8. There is no shining without burning. It was in 1948. A young college student wrote in his journal of his own personal exercise, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I might burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, it's thine. I seek not a long life. I seek a full life like you, Lord Jesus. He went on to write, Saturate me with the oil of thy spirit. And he closed his personal diary with these words, Make me thy flame. Make me thy fuel, O flame of God. That was in 1948. Four years later, that young man, with five others, lay upon the sands of a river, their lives given for Christ. Jim Elliott, you know the name. He wanted to burn for God. Not a long life, but a full life. Any interest in having a full life for God? A burning and a shining light for God. That's what Jim Elliot was, and certainly that's what the Lord Jesus Christ said of John. Just think with me for a moment of, of this man, just very briefly. Much could be said. Just let me just mention a few things. First of all, he was a man sent from God. That's the first thing we find about him, other than his birth record in Luke chapter 1. He was a man sent from God. He didn't go, he was sent. Number two, we read about him as well. He was in the wilderness until the days of his presentation to the nation. And thirdly, we read, he must increase, I must decrease. Here was a man, and he was sent, he had the right mission, had the right mandate, he was sent by God. 
He was a man that came at the right moment until the days of his showing to Israel. He was a man that came with the right motive. He must increase. I must decrease. He was a burning and a shining light. Great. I'll use the word easy to be a Christian here, right? I mean, it's the going thing. You know, that, that's what makes you belong because you're, you're here and you're, you're a Christian. Easy. It'll be a lot more difficult tomorrow morning in the dormitory, in the classroom, in the office, in the neighborhood, wherever it is. Here was a man that was consistent wherever he was. That's what marked him. That's what made him the man he was, was absolute consistency. He did no miracle. An unspectacular ministry. Day in and day out. Wearing the same clothes, eating the same food, preaching the same message. That's what John was like. An unspectacular ministry. But what this man had was an unimpeachable testimony. John did no miracle. But everything that John said was true. All things that John spake of this man were true. So let me tell you about something he, something this man manifested. Something that this man displayed. What, what, what did he manifest? I don't know what you would think is the greatest day in John's life. Certainly the, uh, the day he pointed out the Lamb of God by the shores and men saw the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. That was a great day. Maybe a greater day was the day when he pointed out Christ and he was willing for men to leave him and follow Christ. But in my own thinking, the greatest day was this. When all men used in their hearts whether this was the Christ. Imagine being confused for Christ. Imagine people thinking that you were Christ. That's what they thought of John. All men were wondering, is this the Messiah that's to come? Could this be He? So I want to tell you something this man was marked by. This man was, was marked by Christ's likeness, if I can use that expression. He was a man who was holy, consistent, faithful. What made this man the way he was? It was a life that was consumed with one object. You remember, don't you, in Luke chapter 1? Got a hard job keeping you all awake in Sunday afternoon and it's warm and everything else, so uh, I should keep turning scriptures. That's one way of keeping people awake. But I'll just remind you of Luke chapter 1 rather than making a turn to it. In Luke chapter 1, you remember the, uh, the different announcements that are given there. The announcement first to Zacharias and then to Elizabeth and then to Mary. And Mary arises in those days and goes into the hill country of Judea to be with Elizabeth. Many different reasons for that, but uh, she goes to be with Elizabeth. And when Mary enters in and greets Elizabeth, we read how that the, the babe leaped in her womb. The, the child, John, still in her womb, leaped, we're told. And when Elizabeth is giving the explanation of that, she says, as soon as the voice of... Um, I better read that because I'm not quoting it right. In Luke chapter 1, you don't have to turn to it. I will find it quickly and read it to you. She says, as soon as the voice of I salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Now keep that in mind. Come in your thinking to John chapter 3, you know it much better. 
He must increase, I must decrease. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He had joy at the entrance of Christ into the world. He had joy when Christ eclipsed him. Joy at the beginning and joy at the end. All because of one person. Not just his entrance into the world, but his exaltation. That he would be everything. That's why this life was so so marked, so manifested. That's why this life so perfectly displayed all that God intended that life to display. A life occupied. His greatest joy. What brings you joy, really? I mean, you know, we live in a culture that is fun-obsessed. It's got to be fun. You don't, you, don't, you don't even go to school anymore without learning unless it's fun. You've got to learn. Industry is learning that the uh, only way you can train employees is by uh, computer games that are fun. Because everyone is addicted to fun. But what really gives you joy? I'm not, I hope I'm not a spoil sport and think that you've know, you got to walk around with a sober face. And, no, no. Far from that. But really, what gives you joy? See, the only thing that gave John joy was what was linked, what was concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. What he manifested and what he maintained was a consistent godly testimony throughout his, his life. All things that John spake of this man were true. Now, I would take that. Maybe you think I'm taking liberties. I would take that to John's life and John's lips. Perfectly, accurately, faithfully represented the message God gave him to bring. All things that John spake of this man were true. An unspectacular ministry, yes. But an unblemished testimony. If I were to give a title to what I'm speaking of, I would speak about the triumph of a testimony. Of a man's life. Here was a man whose life and whose lips gave eloquent testimony to the one he had come to represent. Now what about your testimony? What about your life first of all? Is your life absolutely consistent with the message you would bring and with the profession you would make? How vital that amongst, in an ungodly world, in, in the home, in the neighborhood, in the school, in the workplace, wherever it is, our lives be marked by a testimony consistent with the message we have come to bring. There was an unimpeachable testimony that this man had. But I want to encourage you by mentioning as well about unseen results. Unseen results. What do I mean? John was off the scene, wasn't he? The sword of Herod, the machinations of Herodias had removed John from the scene altogether. He was home in heaven. And yet, and yet here, perhaps two years after his death, see that he had sown is suddenly bearing fruit. Unseen results. Does that mean anything to you? You've been praying for someone all your life? There are parents who prayed for children. Parents are home in heaven. And then their children get saved. 
There are people who have a neighbor that they show kindness to and witness to and speak to and maybe circumstances take them apart. Yet they find out later on God used that to save them. I may have my details because it's been a number of years since he told me, but I may have my details a bit sketchy here, but I think you all know the name of Philip Harding who has been here, who has ministered the Word of God years ago from Wales, now lives in Scotland. He was not raised in a Christian family in Wales. He and some friends as young men were walking, they call it a promenade, we would call it a boardwalk by the ocean, and a man was giving out tracts, and a man handed Philip Harding a track. He looked at it, tore it up, threw it in the man's face, and like young men would do, just walked on. What he did suddenly went as an arrow to his conscience. It wasn't long till he was saved. To this day, to this day, he doesn't know who the man is that gave him the track. Unseen results in your life because of an unblemished testimony. See, you're going out to face a world that is hostile, that is going to laugh, scorn, show no interest, at best be politically correct and polite. But really, what is going to eventually carry the greatest weight is the life you have lived, that you are living before them. Here was a man with an unblemished testimony and there were unseen results. John labored and gave his life without ever seeing the fruit that was going to come from that particular region. Yes, there were crowds that came to his baptism. There were people that flocked to hear him. But here in this area, there were people that just remembered the testimony and the preaching and the life of John. But they had never trusted the Savior. And John went home to heaven. And as far as he knew, I don't know if he would have assessed his service as having been so fruitless. But God was going to bring fruit someday from what he had done. Could I encourage all of us, parents with unsaved children, individuals here that have friends and neighbors upon their heart, those that seek to sow the seed of the Word of God either by tract distribution or door-to-door visitation, even just carrying on our weekly Sunday night gospel meeting. Unseen results. It's interesting, isn't it, that when you're in chapter 9 of this gospel, you have a, a simple testimony. Can't explain all your questions and can't reason with you, but one thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. That's it, boys. That's as simple as I can make it. And you can argue all you want. Bring all your reasoning to bear upon it. You can argue as long as you want to argue with me. But I once was blind and now I can see you explain it. A simple testimony. When you come to chapter 11, you've got a silent testimony. You've got Lazarus sitting at the table with the Lord Jesus. And many are coming because of Lazarus. The evidence of life in a man drew their attention. So in chapter 9, you've got a, a simple testimony. In chapter 11, you've got a silent testimony. In chapter 10, you've got a spotless testimony. A testimony that was absolutely unblemished. 
And it drew men eventually to the Lord Jesus. God will answer prayer at His own time. I hope this doesn't sound irreverent. But someone has said, even when God is slow, He's on time. Now you'll understand that. Even when we, God, judge to be slow in working, He's got His own timetable. He has His own plan. And He will work things out according to His own wisdom and His own will. Unlikely ministry, unspectacular ministry, unimpeachable testimony, unseen results. One final thing. In a very unlikely place. In a very unlikely place. Many believed on Him there. Now just bear with me a minute. We won't get too deep into this. But John's Gospel was built around four journeys up to Jerusalem. Back and forth. So you've got chapter 2 to 4. You've got chapter 5 and 6. You've got chapter 7 to 10. And you've got chapter 11 to chapter 19. And in all of those sections, if you take them apart and look at them for yourself, there is balancing truth in every section. For example, in chapters 2, 3, and 4, in chapter 2, he's regulating the Jewish worship in the temple. And in chapter 4, he's regulating Gentile worship in Samaria. Chapter 5 and 6, there's a symmetry as well. You remember how it begins? It begins with a man lying by a pool, wishing the waters would be troubled. And in chapter 6, you have men in a boat with troubled water, wishing they would be calm. In chapter 11, rather in chapter 11 to 19, chapter 12, you've got a woman coming with one pound of alabaster to anoint him. Chapter 19, you've got a man coming with a hundred pounds. But what about these chapters? This is what is significant about there. How does this section, chapter 7 to 10, begin? Here's how it begins. His brethren say unto him, There's no man who wants to be known openly who does these things in secret. Go up and show yourself. Show yourself in Jerusalem. That was the echo of what Satan said. Show yourself. Cast yourself down. Show them who you are. Now it comes from his brothers. Because it says, Neither did his brothers, brethren, believe on him. So for however number of years you want to think of it, whether it was 29 years old to be the oldest, the Lord Jesus lived before a family that didn't believe in him. So where you would have expected faith in the family at beginning in chapter 7, there was none. When you come to the end of chapter 10 where you would least expect to find it, that's where it was. But again, just to draw a parallel because the Lord Jesus in His spotless testimony before His brothers, as those brothers look back on that testimony, you know what they say? Here's what James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, says when he's writing his epistle. Hold not, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. The glory. As he looked back on that life and thought of how little he appreciated it, there was nothing in that life, nothing in that life that in any way compromised the glory of God. And Jude as well speaks of him as our Lord Jesus Christ, not my brother, Not my half-brother gives him his full title of dignity. Recognizing the value, the worth of the one of whom he was speaking. Unspectacular ministry, that's what every one of us has. 99% of your life and mine is the routine, the day-to-day. An unblemished testimony. 
That's what God desires of us. Lives that are lived for His pleasure in the routine of life. Our brother has mentioned already that the Lord Jesus by His life has added dignity to manual labor. You go to Titus chapter 2 where slaves are given the tremendous privilege of adorning, beautifying the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Christianity has imbued the routine of life with the grandeur of eternity and the potential that in every aspect of life, whether it's raising a family for God, whether it's carrying on your business in a scriptural, godly manner, whether it's giving the very best you can to your employer, God has invested the routine with tremendous potential. That in the routine of life, that unblemished testimony of yours can be for eternal glory. It was back in 1952. A young idealistic man named Stephen Weschler. He was a Harvard graduate. But during that time, you've got to go back to the 50s now, he had secretly belonged to seven different communist and socialist cells. He was drafted into the army and uh, was afraid to reveal his background, and so he went. While there, he received a letter that they wanted to speak to him because they found out certain things of his past, and he knew what would happen. He would be court-martialed. So he escaped to Austria, swam the Danube, ended up in East Germany thinking he'd be hailed as a hero, but... Actually, was put in prison. They suspected he was a spy. Over the many years, he gradually won their confidence and worked his way up until finally he was a professor at one of the universities. But then, 1989, when suddenly the seemingly impregnable Soviet bloc began to disintegrate. And it was, of course, on... November the 8th, 1989, that the Berlin Wall came down. But as Stephen Weschler saw what was happening, he began frantically writing to all the Communist Party leaders in Germany and in all the surrounding bloc countries, pleading with them not to give in to Western strength and Western innuendos, but to hold the line. And when the wall came down, he wrote to friends in America, I have never been so depressed. I have wasted my life. Wasted my life. I thought of that as our brother was telling us about Jonathan. Next time you're reading about Jonathan and David and Saul, when you come to chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, and you read about them being slain upon Mount Gilboa, it says that they came to... Saul, and they stripped him of his armor. They didn't strip Jonathan. Jonathan had already stripped himself for David. Now you can be like a Jim Elliot and have your life wasted by others because you've given it to Christ. You can be like a Stephen Weschler and waste your life because you're giving it to something else. Not calling for spectacular Christian living. Calling for Christian living in the routine of life. Unspectacular ministry. An unblemished testimony. Unseen results. And an unlikely place. 
you may well find that God will bless your efforts in the most unlikely place imaginable. Mr. McBain, a preacher from a past generation through whom some of us were saved, used to say, when he went for gospel meetings, God had to give him decoys. Now what he meant by that was just this. He went burdened about certain people he knew. And when he got there, those people could care less. But suddenly from nowhere, God brought people with an interest in being saved. People he never expected. People totally outside of the realm of his interest. But God had to give him those decoys to bring him to an area to see people saved. Live your life as we've been hearing already from our brethren. Live it with an unblemished, consistent testimony for God. You will be blessed, but more than that, more than that, He will be honored and glorified. May God bless His word.